0: Good morning. That was a loud response. Good uh, my name is Jeff Nine. Uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet, I would love to to get to meet you. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and and it's just an honor to to be able to be with you this morning. Um, we're we're going to be diving into this text, and I just want to start by saying this: that that <clears throat> living in the Bible Belt, living in a in a space that has for years been we could just say culturally christianized in many ways not maybe in every way but in lots of ways there are certain there are certain stories from the bible that we've probably heard that uh, we've heard so often they become so familiar that sometimes we actually miss we actually miss the, me- the the depth of the message of what they're they're saying to us and this is i think one of those texts there are, these are these are three short little snippets that if we're not careful, we actually miss a, a, a beautiful message from God and an invitation from the Lord. So I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to ask you to pray for me as we vi- dive into this text and ask the Lord to to speak to us. God, would you teach us today? Holy Spirit, uh, we're asking that you would help us see Jesus with more clarity than when we walked in the doors we can we can read these words of scripture we can we can hear them read but we need you holy spirit to work in our hearts to actually comprehend and understand them so would you do that i pray I pray this in jesus name amen i don't think it would be too out of line to say that most of us in this room at one level or another want to be king now, you may object and go, I want to be queen. That's fine. That, that what we want is we actually want to be the sovereign over our domain. Now, some of us are are, are are cautioned enough to not go, not actually want to be responsible for other people. Like, I don't want to be king for them. That's a lot of pressure. I don't want to be king over a geography. Some of you are power hungry. You're like, yeah, I want to rule the world. Um, <clears throat> we need to have a different talk after this service. But we want to be king at least over our domain. That in many ways, what... What we don't want as humans is somebody to tell us what to do. There's been a lot of even study on this in the, in, in, by philosophers and sociologists over the years to actually to, to identify what's, what has been termed the rise of the autonomous self. The idea that uh, Western modern uh, humans, they want control. They want autonomy. We want freedom from constraint. I don't want you to tell me what to do. I won't tell you what to do. You be king or queen of your domain. I'll take care of mine, right? And I think this sentiment um, has probably not been captured anywhere quite as beautifully as in the classic American novel by Maurice Sendak, Where the Wild Things Are. I think we've got a picture If you're not familiar with this novel, go pick it up at, uh, I would say, a bookstore on your way home, but I don't think bookstores exist anymore, so go to Amazon, add it to your cart, get it. It's one of the greatest children's books ever ever done. I love it. I loved it as a kid. I love it as an adult. I want to go read it right now. If you're not familiar with the story, it it features a little boy named Max. Max runs around in his wolf suit um, trying to terrorize his entire home. He is going to be king of his domain. And when his, the parental authorities come in to squash that, he rises up and asserts authority until he's sent to bed early without dinner. And as he drifts off to sleep, he has a dream. And in this dream, he's no longer just king of his domain. He's king of an entire land where the wild things are that these ferocious beasts that ought to scare most people are pushed down under his thumb because he is in charge. He wears a crown, and he commands authority. Sounds a lot like us. What I don't want is somebody to tell me what to do. I want to assert authority. We think that at one level or another, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we actually think our life would go better if we were in charge. If what I didn't have was a boss domineering, peeking over my shoulder, if what I didn't have is the the government trying to infringe on my rights, if I didn't have pesky neighbors that were telling me what I could and couldn't do with my lawn. We think life would go better, that we think good news is I'm in charge. What Mark is here to tell us is that there is good news, and that's not it. What Mark is going to say is that good news, this this word gospel, this good news actually tells us about who Jesus is, that the very good news is ultimately not actually what Jesus knows, though he knows a great deal. It's not so much in what Jesus does, though he does amazing things. It's not in what Jesus says, though he says profound, wise things. Ultimately, good news is found in who he is, who he is. And so as we move through this text, I think there's three things we're going to see. And I'm just going to go ahead and give you the notes now. Uh, Don't take that as an excuse to take a nap. Uh, We're going to unpack these because I think these have drastic impact on how we live our day or live our lives day in and day out. We learn here that Jesus is the son of God, that Jesus is the new Israel, and that Jesus is the king. Let's start with looking at Jesus as the Son of God. Read with me in verse 9 here of Mark 1. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Son of God. Now, this is just picking up on what, John has, or what, what Mark has already said in verse 1. Chad talked about this two weeks ago. That he's already declared that Jesus is the Son of God, and, and we're left asking because that's a strange phrase. It's a phrase that many of us may not be super familiar with, and there are lots of implications to that statement. But at the center of it is simply this, that Jesus is God. Jesus is divine, or to say it, Jesus is God in flesh. The Bible is clear on this. Jesus is not stepping into Galilee at this moment. He's not standing in this place being baptized as some kind of um, guru. He's not coming as just a, a prophet who's got a better message than the prophets before. He's not standing as some highly enlightened religious zealot. No, 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 the Bible is declaring that Jesus is God. Now, I don't I don't know, I don't it doesn't matter how much you know about the Bible or how little you know about the Bible. It doesn't matter in in this case, whether you are not yet a Christian or whether you've been following Jesus for decades. That phrase should shock you. because there's no religion. No worldview, no philosophy that's ever made that claim that God came as human and dwelt among us. Only Christianity makes that claim. That Jesus is God. Tim Keller says it this way in his book, Christ the King Son of God, it's an astonishingly, uh, astonishingly bold term that goes beyond the popular understanding of the Messiah at the time. It's a claim of outright divinity. Mark then raises the stakes all the way and makes the ultimate claim. By quoting Isaiah's prophetic passage, Mark asserts that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the voice calling out in the desert. That's the passage we talked about last week. Since Mark equates John with the one who would prepare the way for the Lord, by clear inference, he means he is equating Jesus with the Lord himself, with God Almighty, the Lord God, the long-awaited divine king who would rescue his people, in Jesus, they are somehow one and the same person. Now at the center of the Christian faith is this mystery of the Trinity, that God is one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. One God, three persons. Not, not more one than three, not more three than one, Three persons, one God, eternally existing in a mutual relationship of perfect, self-giving love, harmony, and unity. But as we see this Trinitarian God in this chapter, something else rises to the surface. There's something else that happens in this baptism. Because what we see is we see God the Father speaking. We see God the Spirit hovering or fluttering like like a dove, it says. And we see Jesus, the Son of God, from this point on, go on and do many things throughout creation. Now, to the Jewish mind of the first century, this immediately brings to mind Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, what you see is you see a picture of God speaking, the Spirit of God hovering or fluttering, and the Word of God going out and creating. God speaking, the Spirit fluttering, the Word creating. When we see here, Jesus in his baptism, hear the declaration of the Father with the presence of the Spirit, he's going out into a work of new creation. A new creation. God didn't, God didn't create everything and then just like hang up the Creator He didn't didn't take that title off. He comes to us as a God of new beginnings, a God of creation. Central to this is the fact that if if Jesus is who Mark is claiming he is, then God didn't send us an aide or an assistant or a lieutenant. He came. When we look at Jesus, we see God. God. Guys, God didn't pawn you off on a subordinate. Some of you are carrying in this morning weights and burdens that that may be making you feel like you're about to crack. And sometimes as we engage in this or as we pray, we can feel like God somehow has forgotten us or has, has sent us a cheap substitute. But the promise of this text is no, that God himself is with us. God himself is for us. That is good news. But the question that we have to, we, we face when we think about Jesus as God is we can sometimes, I think, get to this point of feeling like, is God maybe aloof or unaware? Is there some sense in which God is actually a, 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 a sheltered sovereign hiding behind the gates of his kingdom, pounding around in a castle... Well, he doesn't actually know what it's like on the streets. Not tension brings us and drives us to the second story of Jesus as the new Israel. Look at Mark 1, verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him, Jesus, into the wilderness. So as soon as his baptism is done, the Spirit who comes and hovers and flutters like a dove now sins. It says drives even drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness, 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. Now, this forces a a question that we have to wrestle with. And and that is this. How can God be tempted? I mean, look, you you can tempt me. uh, My my family and I joke around the one thing that you could tempt me with is a really nice Tesla. I mean, one of the nice ones, the self-driving ones, in the faster ones, like it's top, 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 right. You could you could tempt me pretty good. Just na- You may not like a Tesla. That's fine. Put put your favorite thing in there that would entice you. Well, the reason that that's enticing to me is because I don't have it. I got 0 'O two Camry. I'd say it's beautiful, but it's not. That that that. I, I'm tempted because there's something out there that I want to have that I don't have. So here's a question. How can God be tempted if God has everything? If God is perfectly content in himself, self, or fully satisfied in the inter-Trinitarian relationships, father loving son, son loving spirit, spirit loving father, How? Simply put, it's because in the person of Jesus, God took on human flesh. Jesus is God, yes, but he's God in flesh, both fully God and fully man. It's important to note, Jesus is not some weird Superman Clark Kent figure where he puts on the glasses and he tries to act like he's normal. That he's not pulling off some kind of sleight of hand. He isn't pretending to be a human Jesus isn't pretending to be human, putting on some kind of a, a man suit to look like he like, look like he's not out of place. It actually tells us that the very Creator of the universe took on flesh and became human. If that doesn't shock us, we've become too familiar with this. Gregory of Nazianzus says it this way: What he was, he continued to be. In other words, Jesus was God and continues to be God. And what he was not, he took to himself. He took on human flesh. So what we're saying right here is that Jesus didn't stop being God to become human. and He didn't pretend to be human so he could stay God. He is God and man. It's critical for us to understand this. Because if not, we can fall into the trap of thinking that maybe Jesus is just pretending to be tempted. Maybe he's just playing like he actually is impacted. Th- that maybe he doesn't really understand what it's like to be human. Maybe he doesn't understand my hurt, my pain, my longings. Maybe he's unaware. Maybe he maybe he doesn't really know what it's like to suffer. But this text tells us otherwise. That God knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to question. He knows what it's like to cry. He knows what it's like to fear. He knows what it's like to want. Because God took on human flesh. This text positions the wilderness almost like a battleground. Sin. At act of war against Jesus, wanting to destroy him. Jesus doing battle. But in the very place where we lose to the war with sin, Jesus wins. In the very place that we find defeat, he finds victory. And it's that victory over the temptation in the wilderness that gives us hope for a future redemption. That that if our hope is not that if Jesus did it, maybe we can figure out how to do it. Our hope is this. Our hope is that because he had the victory in the wilderness and because I'm united to him by faith, his victory becomes my victory. But make it no mistake, he was tempted and yet he did not fail. It also, again, to the first century Jew, this story of this temptation brings immediately to mind Israel, after the Exodus. So in the, in the Old Testament, in the, in the book of Exodus, we find God's people have been taken as slaves in Egypt. And God says, I'm going to rescue you and draw you out of Egypt and t- take you into a promised land. But between the Exodus out of Egypt and their entrance into the promised land, they spend 40 years in the desert being tested. 40 years in a desert desert, finding temptation at their heels, left and right. And you know what Israel did in the wilderness? Utterly failed. Utterly failed. What Jesus is doing is stepping into the place where Israel failed, where we fail, and not failing. He re Israel. He, he reimagines this story. He steps into the place of Israel and does what Israel couldn't do. He steps into the place that you and I find temptation and does what we can't do. He finds hope where we find despair. That Jesus here stands as a new Israel leading us into a new Exodus, a new Israel leading us into a new. Exodus. I want to stop for just a second. You know, I don't know what you brought in the room today, but, but God's not unaware. When we talk about temptation, typically that first temptation that we're faced with is usually pretty easy to deflect and brush off, right? That first idea or thought of something that we shouldn't have or shouldn't do like, at, at first, it's pretty easy to just go, yeah, I'm not going to do that. But, but over time, sometimes the, the temptation ratchets up, and we find ourselves in a place in which we want a thing more than we wanted it before, or we, we feel like we need a thing that we don't have, and we need it more than we did, and we find ourselves more and more tempted. The temptation becomes stronger, and at a certain point, what do we do? We give in. You win, temptation. You win. I, I give up. But what happens if you don't give in? the temptation gets worse, doesn't it? It ratchets up. It gets harder. I want to say this. Jesus doesn't just know what it's like for you to face the temptation you face. He's faced temptations you've never even imagined. He's faced suffering you've never understood. He's faced betrayals that makes our betrayals pale in comparison. That Jesus knows what it's like. He knows what it's like. So what? So what, Jeff? Jesus is God, took on human flesh, he knows what it's like to tempt. So what? The story's not done. Look at verse 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, listen, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You see, God is not just, Jesus is not just the son of God. and He's not just a new Israel, but he's king. Because we're left asking this question, how can Jesus say, to the people around him, that the kingdom of God is at hand. Because if you know the history, what you know is that Israel has found themselves back in the land that God had given them, but they're under Roman occupation. In a place where they ought to find freedom, where they ought to be kind of able to to stand on their own two feet, they have another country that has come in and crushed them and pressed them down. Israel, once, once a glorif- glory-filled nation, has now been diminished to a backwoods province on the backside of the Sea of Galilee. The kingdom of God is at hand? How can you say that? The Romans are at our throats. You may say, the kingdom of God is at hand. How can you say that? Because of my diagnosis feels like it's going to get the last word. How can you tell me the kingdom of God is at hand? Have you seen my checking account? Do you know what the relationship is that I have with my father or my mother or my kids? do you know what it's like where I live? Because that doesn't look like the kingdom. Jesus declares this in a place in which it didn't look like the kingdom of God. And yet, Mark is very, very clear and he doesn't apologize. Jesus isn't a partner or a helper. He's a king. The reason that Jesus can say the kingdom of God is at hand is because he, the king, was standing right there. That's why he can say that. That the sovereign God of the universe is standing right there. Listen, there is nothing in creation that Jesus bends a knee to. There's not anything in creation that Jesus says, you got it, and backs off. There's no situation, there's no pain, there's no fear in which he yields. And yet, everything in creation will now or one day bow the knee to Jesus. He is the sovereign king. He's not just sovereign and powerful, he's good. But we find ourselves in places where what we want is we want to be king. We resonate with Adam and Eve who in the garden when God gives them a perfect dwelling place still wants more because they want to be what Max wants to be. Lord where the wild things are. And so they rejected God as king and set themselves up as king. They took his crown, put it on, said that feels good and jumped onto his throne and tried to pretend to be in control. And the only thing that came after it was death and destruction. Israel, over and over and over again, would raise up kings and put their hope in kings, hoping that someday somebody would be able to use power in a good way, only to be disappointed over and over and over and over again. This king is good. Guys, we're not we, it's not that we're, we're 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 not good kings, but it's not because we don't have enough power. If we had enough power, that would just make even bigger of a mess. We're not good kings because we're not good enough. But Jesus, the son of God himself, the new Israel that succeeds where we failed. He is good. And he is in control. He is king. Front line. this is why what Mark says is good news, because he heralds a good king. He heralds a good king, and that king is inaugurating a new kingdom. The invitation for us is to trust him. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to just take a second and I want you to think, where are those areas where what you think is that, that, that it will go better if you can only get control of that thing? If only you had enough power to remove that thing from your life or to fix that aspect of your past. Where is that for you? Where's that space where, where you think, if only, if only I could control this? Where are those areas where you find you trying to grasp the wheels? You try to grasp the wheel. I, I can control this. I can, I can take over. I can get us to a good destination. Because that is exactly the space in which the good news is not that you get control, but that you have a king who is in control. That's where the good news will meet you. That is where we meet a king. So what's it look like to relinquish control? That's actually the end here of what Jesus says, and this is actually Jesus' first sermon, way better than mine and way shorter. The time is fulfilled And the kingdom of God is at hand. Listen to this. Repent and believe in the gospel. How do we respond to a Jesus who is the son of God, the new Israel, and is the king? How do we respond? By relinquishing the control that we try to grasp for and trusting in a good king. To name that place in your life where I think if only I can grab a hold of that, I can find hope. And he says, repent. Don't put your hope in yourself. Believe in the gospel. Believe in the good news. What good news? That Jesus is a good king. Jesus is your good king. Now, if you're not a Christian here today, I hope you'll hear this invitation. He's asking you to trust him. And we'd love to process it with you afterwards and talk with you about that. If you've got any questions, there are no questions off limits. There's no objection you have that we're going to push out the door. If you're wrestling with what does it mean for him to be king, we want to talk with you. If you're not a Christian, I'm asking you to trust him. And if you say, Jeff, I am a Christian. I've followed Jesus for a while. I guarantee you there are areas where you continue to try to grasp the crown like Max tried to grasp control. Where is that? Because God's call to you is the same as to anyone, to repent and to believe that he is a good king.